It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. I'm your host, David Moses. 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates, as well as ELMNTFM, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We also want to welcome our listeners on other radio stations that are carrying Moment of Truth. We welcome you. We also welcome our listeners that are listening online through your favorite podcast platform, or our website and our SoundCloud. Welcome to you all. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show the new chairs for the 18th Annual Toronto Human Rights Watch Film Festival. With me, I have Jennifer Bechwal, as well as Nicolas Depensier. Jennifer was born in Montreal, grew up in Victoria, British Columbia. Oh, I love Victoria, British Columbia. She studied philosophy and theology at McGill University and received an MA, supported by a McGill Major Fellowship and an FCAR Master's Scholarship. Nicholas is a director, producer, and director of photography and working on documentary and video installations. He is president of Mercury Films, Inc., and it's a Toronto-based production company that he shares with his partner, Jennifer. I'd like to welcome them both to the show. Welcome. Thanks so much for having us, David. We're happy to be here. Hello. And congratulations on the new chairs of the uh, Toronto Human Rights Watch Film Festival. Well, it's it's a great honor to be asked. And of course, Helga Stephenson is an old friend and we've been involved with HRW for years um, in, in various capacities. Uh, and so for, for us, this is a, um, a really exciting thing to be able to participate and help curate uh, this festival. Right. It's a wonderful uh, event focusing on these documentaries. Something about this year's uh, 18th an uh, annual event. It's going to be presenting five powerful and compelling films that will be uh, completely digital for the first time since the Toronto HRWFF's conception. And it's exciting that the virtual opportunity allows the festival to provide unprecedented access to free film screenings and programming across Canada, nationwide, of course, and that's going to be from February uh, 18th until the 22nd. And I understand people can get tickets by reserving and going online. Is that correct? Absolutely. So necessity being the mother of invention. Mm. And in previous years, the festival has partnered with uh, the Toronto International Film Festival, and we've screened in their facilities, and more recently, the Hot Docs Film mm -hmm. Festival, yep. and screened in their facilities. But of course, in the pandemic, everything is virtual. And um, it's been a wonderful opportunity to extend the range for people outside of Toronto. Mm -hmm. uh, in Canada, you can log on. The tickets are free, but you do need a ticket. And uh, our opening night is February 15th with a fantastic film called A La Calle. And we will have um, some kind of opening night festivities uh, <laughs> with some, some introductions and then a live panel discussion on Zoom following. But otherwise, the film festival, you're free to watch the films uh, at your leisure over the window mm. of, the, of the festival. So between February 18th and 22nd, if you have your virtual ticket, you can decide when it's convenient for you to watch that film. And each film also has um, uh, either a message from the film's director or uh, some relevant piece, just like you'd have at a film festival. Maybe mm. you'd have a Q&A afterwards. Right 
from the audience to the stage. We're trying to replicate that virtually with a, a short video piece uh, w w that follows each film. So we're very excited. Yeah, yeah. and one thing that is worth uh, mentioning is that all of these films are chosen because they, they uh, are connected to active work that Human Rights Watch is doing around the world. So often it's the Human Rights Watch investigators who are conducting the Q&A or who are part of the, uh, the discussion to give an extra layer of depth to what you are seeing. And uh, uh, we're, you know, th their work is unparalleled in terms of the research that they do in terms of how they are uh, considered by other, you know, journalistic organizations, et cetera. Um, as being of the highest integrity. And so these films also are vetted in that way too. Mm. Uh, thank you for, for sharing that. Now, you mentioned uh, Human Rights Watch Canada, and I'm just wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about it. So you, guys, you guys have said you've been involved for quite some time. Can you tell us more about the Human Rights Watch itself? Human Rights Watch um, is an incredible organization that does... Uh, first-hand, non-partisan research around the world uh, uh, on human rights issues. So they're often in conflict zones, very difficult places to work, uh, and they are collecting data, filing reports that through the years have really been uh, established as rock-solid, credible uh, sources of information, and they're used by non-governmental organizations, by aid organizations. These reports are often filter through uh, to journalistic organizations and media, and governments themselves will um, uh, often use them when they are forming policy, especially about really difficult and fast-moving uh, situations around the world. And so I think as we're as in the pandemic, when we've retreated to our basements uh, somehow and, and our, our worlds have become smaller, it's important that we remember that um, uh, some of these difficulties, some of these uh, struggles around the world are uh, perhaps even exacerbated in the, in the paradigm of, of the pandemic. And really, we should not be shutting them out of our consciousness or stopping our uh, activism and efforts to try and alleviate the suffering and to try and and uh, end conflicts and Human Rights Watch uh, it has been you know a, a, an amazing organization for furthering those goals and we're filmmakers and we have had the the great uh, privilege of having some of our films programmed in previous Human Rights Watch film festivals which travel around the world in in different places where where Human Rights Watch will have offices or or programs. So in London and New York and, and in, in Europe and various places in Hong Kong, there this uh, these festivals, different every time, um, uh, are a great way, I think, for Human Rights Watch to gather community, to uh, raise consciousness about the issues that, that they are working on in a way that's accessible to lots of people. A film festival is a way of of curating the, these ideas and then rallying people around uh, to enjoy the films and learn from the films uh, and and engage with them and then by extension to learn more about the work that that Human Rights Watch itself as an organization is doing. Okay, uh, Jennifer, do you have anything to add to that? Um, just that we did the uh, what what was the year that we did the tenth anniversary the tenth anniversary of Human Rights Watch Canada and we learned. Video a video, a video for their, um, for that celebration. And we learned about the specific work 
also that, that Human Rights Watch Canada does. Um, and, and so, you know, what, what Nick said is absolutely right. And it's, it's, a, uh, it's a vital organization. And as he says right now, we're, we're in a, a, a position in the world where uh, conflict is, is more um, uh, exacerbated than ever. And so raising consciousness about these things and these issues is, is crucial and inspiring. The, mm. these, these are great films. Mm. So um, really uh, films that, that take you all around the world into these different situations and, and, and give you a window onto other people's lives. Right. I'm glad you're you set that up because I want to let people know that this year's films present stories at the heart of human rights battles in Kenya, Venezuela, Sweden, Iran, Turkey, and Peru. And these specifically selected films touch upon issues that dominate today's headlines, just as you were saying, environmental activism, uh, protest marches, the LGBTQ rights, and then the plight of refugees. And that is the one film I was actually able to view and I have a, an interview coming up with Ava uh, just after this, the, the director of the film Love Child. And I'm very honored to be able to have seen it and uh, share that and, and do the interview with Ava uh, following this so we can give more depth and more of that, uh, that outline of, of what these films bring to, to the audience and how they raise that awareness. So thank you for, for setting that up. Now, of course, Love Child is only one of the films being presented. And uh, you mentioned another film that you start with on the 15th. Can you guys share a little bit about each of the films for us? So basically, I mean, I will say I, I love Ava's work and uh, Love Child is just an absolutely uh, astonishing mm. film in, in terms of its breadth and yeah. intimacy and also the way that it, it, it deals with the the issues that refugees face yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Um, and, and that kind of constant uh, uh, insecurity that they have to live with yeah. and, and uh, Wake Up on Mars is also... Uh, deals with issues of um, uh, refugees where these sisters actually have something that is called resignation syndrome, um, where children who are seeking asylum, often following a threat of deportation or, you know, some kind of PTSD situation, they, they literally shut down and kind of uh, fall asleep and they, they, they can't interact at all. And, and you see this family grappling with two sisters who have the same condition, um, what, what they call a vegetative state. Uh, and it is, it is, it, it's harrowing. And, and yet their parents are so devoted to them and their younger brother is sort of trying to negotiate this as well. It's a beautiful film. Um, and uh, uh, I Am Samuel, uh, which takes place in Kenya and is about LGBTQ plus rights is very much a, uh, Another, you know, sort of a small story of a of, of a man who realizes that he's gay, and 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 yet his his father is quite conservative, and the village that he lives in is quite conservative, and it shows the kind of process of him coming out to his family, but also his family accepting him as he is, as well as his partner, and it's, um, yeah, it's a it's a very sweet film, mm. and Nick. I mean, it, it's amazing when you consider um, uh, the the struggles of some of these films' protagonists, certainly the ones that we've talked about, um, people who have had to flee their home countries 
and then find themselves in a in a precarious situation in terms of the refugee stories, either in in uh, uh, Sweden in the case of Wake Up on Mars or in in Turkey uh, in the case of of Love Child. Um, you know, it's it's an incredible responsibility as a filmmaker to um, engage with people whose situations are so tenuous, and I think it's it's a real uh, testament to documentary as a form the intimacy uh, of some of these films and the access and the trust that the filmmakers were able to to get, and and then hopefully the the fact that these films are able to raise consciousness about these issues, the more universal resonance of these very particular intimate stories, um, that they really can be a a force for good in the world. I mean, I am Samuel. When you when you see uh, the the protagonist's immense struggle just to live his his identity uh, as as uh, a, a member of the LGBT community there in a in a country that still has such systemic um, oppression for anyone who tries to live that identity and and there are some very harrowing scenes uh, and yet it's it's a very um, optimistic film in the end just the fortitude. Uh, that I think, you know, lets us all um, uh, contemplate these issues. Uh, and so uh, th there's a really in incredible range. The opening night film, A La Calle, um, by Nelson Navarrete and Max Cicello, is uh, it's an extraordinary um, window onto all of the unrest uh, around the democratic processes that have been happening in Venezuela. And you really feel like you are there in the street. The title A La Calle means to the street, and it's it, it's the um, uh, you know the demonstrations that are that are happening and the incredible reversals uh, of of their democratic process. That I mean, I, I learned so much seeing a film like that. Uh, just about the the facts of the situation, but then also emotionally and viscerally, uh, what that kind of struggle is. And then Maxima, um, which is directed by Claudia Sparrow, it, it, it's such a powerful film. Um, it is about the environmental Goldman Prize winner um, uh, in 2016, Maxima Acuna, who has a small plot of land in the Peruvian highlands and, and literally lives the whole, the environment is their livelihood, but their land is in direct conflict. It sits in the path of a multi-billion dollar um, mining, gold mining project. And she has been faced with the most incredible intimidation, violence. They've tried to prosecute her and she has been fighting for justice for the right to stay on her land. And of course, she 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 stands in for um, people everywhere, indigenous people particularly, who are trying to maintain these traditional ways of life in the face of um, massive multinational corporations that are used to doing whatever they want. And I, I have to say, it was it was so inspiring to see this. And of course, her fight is not over. Um, and in, in all of these films, and in, in the films about refugees, their situations are still very much precarious and tenuous. And at Alakaye, the same thing is happening. So these are not sort of resolved stories. These are fights that are still going on. 
Now, I'm sure that you had other films in the lineup that you were able to look at, try to choose which films you were going to feature this year. How difficult of a decision was it for you to to come up with these five? Because, as you say, they all look like wonderful, wonderful films, and I'm sure they're not the only ones that were out there. We're, we're really happy with the lineup, and especially, as Jen says, these aren't historical documents. These mm. really feel like they are still immediate and still ongoing mm. you know you're we're really learning about issues that um that are that are happening now we tried really hard to find a, a an appropriate canadian film and um, obviously as canadian filmmakers uh, that's the community that we're from and canada just punches so far above its weight in terms of documentary filmmaking and mm. and, and especially uh, sometimes taking on the the, the challenges of of, uh, of human rights based um, uh, films we weren't able to find something not because they're not out there I think there were some that were just a little bit ahead and some that that are that are a little bit not quite ready yet we're tracking some that our friends are making that weren't quite ready for this so that's the that's the one regret is that we didn't have a Canadian film although um, many of these films have universal resonance and some of them do have Canadian connections and the, the post film screenings, I think will, will uh, uh, discussions will, will try and weave in that, that aspect as well. But I, I think it's, you know, the, there's such a, a complicated marketplace mm. to try and find films that you want to see. There's so many films out there and we have all these streamers, you know, and these different feeds and ways of finding them. I think um, a, a film like this, if we've been successful, and I'm, I think we're really, both of us really happy about this lineup, you know, it offers that, that rare um, kind of focus of curation that uh, a lot of people, not just ourselves, have cast a very wide net for the most interesting and salient films through this lens, the lens of human rights in, in this case, um, and uh, that, that we've been able to, you know, help people, I think, sort through seeing films that that uh, you know might not be the strongest examples and I think these really are as well of course um, the 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 important thing to point out there as I mentioned before is that all of these films are directly related to work that human rights watch is doing mm. uh, around the world so when you uh, see them you're also learning about uh, the work of human rights watch and the 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 when they, you know, they say tyranny has a witness, and it is absolutely the case that these films are that witness, but it, it also shines a light on the work that Human Rights Watch does. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates, as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We'd also like to welcome listeners that are on other radio stations carrying Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. And anyone is listening online through our uh, SoundCloud, our website, and also your favorite podcast platform. My guests here on Moment of Truth for this portion of the show are Jennifer Bachewall, and she is one of the new chairs of the Toronto Toronto Human Rights Watch Film Festival, along with Nicolas de Pensier, and uh, it's a pleasure to have them both as the new chairs of the festival. And if I didn't say this off the top of the show, congratulations on your appointments as chairs. As you mentioned off the top, you have been involved with the uh, Human Rights Watch for some time. 
We're talking about this 18th annual Toronto Human Rights Film Watch, which is going to be screening from February 18th until the 22nd, and you can go online and see the five films for free that they have chosen to air this year in the festival. And uh, we're going to be actually speaking with one of the directors of one of those films, Love Child, coming up right after this interview. So please stay tuned for that. But getting back to this part of the program as they we set up what's going on for the 18th annual uh, film festival. And uh, as we mentioned earlier, it's uh, stories that are at the heart of human rights that battle in uh, Kenya, Venezuela, Sweden, and Iran and Turkey and uh, Peru. And uh, selected films that touch upon issues that dominate today's headlines, environmental activism, protest marches, LGBTQ rights, and the plight of refugees. So it's a pleasure to have both Jennifer and Nicholas on the show with us. I'm just wondering, as things have changed over the last year, so much has changed in the way we perceive things, the way we look at the world. The world came to a stop because of COVID-19. I guess as we're still not out of COVID-19 and the way the, the, the Human Rights Watch Film Festival is being presented is, of course, affected by that and how it's rolling out this year. Do you think that the way we look at films now, specifically documentary films. Do you think the way this last year, because of COVID-19, has allowed us to perceive or look at these films differently now? Well, I feel that we've, you know, our, our understanding of what community is has obviously changed. And as filmmakers, we're, you know, we, we, we still very much subscribe to the um, the the model of a bunch of people sitting together in a dark room sharing an experience of mm. watching a film and and that that obviously is still for us the gold standard you know our our films are kind of meant to be projected on a big screen many of them and and so there's there's that uh, not not ju- just the idea of people getting together and having a shared experience and so. I think our understanding of what community is has changed because we can still do those things. Our community is virtual now, but it's more important than ever, I think, to have these moments where we come together and have a shared experience, despite the fact that we're all, you know, in our in our own houses looking, watching on our computers or whatever. So I feel that, that that is certainly a, a difference that we have to think about. And the other thing I would point out is that, you know, in the, in the pandemic, people for solace, for, you know, um, for a, a respite from the kind of relentless doom scrolling that I know that I do uh, all the time, is looking to art, looking to stories, looking to powerful stories that both allow us to go to different places around the world um, uh, where, where we can't, you know, where we're all trapped in lockdown um, and expand our consciousness that way. And I think that, that the, the role of art and storytelling and, and, and especially documentary, I mean, that's our form. We, we've chosen it. It's our vocation. To me, uh, that, that is more important than ever. Um, and and certainly something that I hope people are availing themselves of. And the wonderful thing about this being digital, um, if you can look for the silver lining in the cloud, is that it's it's it, well, it, one, it's free, but secondly, it's across Canada, so anybody can can see it. We haven't been able to do that before, and I I love the idea 
of this cross-Canada community coming together for this festival um, and being being uh, united by it, having a shared experience. Mm. Um, Nicholas, anything to add to that? I agree. My best possible hope is that people replicate that experience that they would have had if they see a film that they that they are interested in and want to check out. You, you know, you might have called a friend or message a friend and said, hey, do you want to go down and see this? You can still do that. You can you can share that experience. You can, you know, if you have a book club or people who you think that might be interested, you don't, it doesn't need to be a solitary experience just because you're watching at home. You can organize it with with friends and colleagues who might be interested and then still have that that discussion afterwards and still have that exchange of ideas. You know, these films are 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 meant to spark conversation there may be meant to spark spark action in some cases um uh and and i think that just because the festival is virtual doesn't mean that those dynamics can't still be happening Mm. right earlier you had mentioned about the making of these films the way that these documentary stories are are being told in terms of the access in terms of the trust and that trust between the filmmakers and the the people the subjects of the film and the stories that are being told I would add to that because of the the film that I saw and, and, and with, it, with with what Ava has done that that transparency that that is being shown in that story with the family. It was marvelous that that that, that family allowed allowed the filmmakers to be so intimately involved with the choices that were going on and to see the interaction that they were going through in a real real sense of. You weren't sure where where some of these conversations were going to go when the couple is at, in a very difficult moment of their relationship and trying to come to terms with the situation that they are in. And you are seeing them really take each other on and you're not sure what's going to happen next in these stories. Would you say that all of the stories that you're presenting are, are you know, come across in that way? Well, I think yes. I mean, and as I said, uh, in 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 most of these situations, people are still very much in the in the middle of the battle. This is not these these are not resolved situations, right. and mm-hmm. that is certainly something that will be talked about in the um, post screening discussions. That you know, uh, they're precarious situations for sure, but also in the in this in, in as filmmakers as documentary filmmakers, you know. There's the, the, it's a testament to the um, commitment and uh, wisdom, I would say, of, of the filmmakers and also the trust between the filmmakers and the subjects that we are able to um, experience these stories so intimately. And that is not an easy thing to do. Um, it, it requires enormous commitment on and trust on both sides. And I think what we see in all of the films is an expression of that, um, which which is really documentary filmmaking at its best, mm. um, with uh, ethical interaction and and um, empathy. Hats off to those to the subjects of these films because they couldn't be made without their willingness to participate and and take part in this in the storytelling. Absolutely, I think it takes a real bravery when you are yourself. In, in a difficult and precarious uh, situation to uh, 
to tell your story, to share your story with with someone. So I, I absolutely agree, and I think that's the strength of of these films uh, is the the authenticity that you that is palpable with the the intimacy uh, of the of the view that we're able to get as viewers mm-hmm. into these worlds. And Nicholas and, and Jennifer, thank you so much for taking part in the show. I know you have to run. You have other things that you need to get to. So I just want to say thank you once again for taking part in the show. And uh, congratulations on uh, your appointments as the new chairs of the Toronto Human Rights Watch Film Festival, the 18th annual. that is taking part from February 18th to the 22nd that people can go and watch films right across the country for free. Thank so you much, so, David. so much for having us. And uh, I will say to everybody, prepare to be inspired. All right. Thank you once again and take care and, uh, and all the best in the future. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. All right. Bye-bye. They are the voices of Jennifer Bechwal and uh, Nicholas Depensier, and they are the new chairs of the Toronto Human Rights Watch Film Festival that is taking place from February 18th to the 22nd. And you can find out more by going online to reserve your ticket. And uh, it's free to anyone right across the country to watch these fabulous five documentary films. But don't go away, because when we come back, we're going to be talking to one of the directors of these films. And we'll find out more by going in-depth to the story and find out about how the film was made. Eva Mulvade is the film director that we'll be talking to coming up right after this. Stay tuned. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. We'd also like to welcome our guests that are listening on other radio stations that are carrying the show, as well as if you are online listening through our SoundCloud or one of your own favorite podcasting platforms. We welcome you to the show. My guest on this part of the show is Eva Mulvat. She graduated from the National Film School of Denmark in 2001, and she has a film in the Toronto Human Rights Watch Film Festival that is being broadcast from February 18th to the 22nd, and all films in this festival will be available to stream across Canada for free. Uh, you just have to reserve your ticket through the Hot Docs Ted Rogers Cinema website. And I'd like to tell you a little bit more about her. She got her breakthrough with Enemies of Happiness in 2006, which won the IDFA Amsterdam's Silver Wolf Award and the World Cinema Jury Prize at Sundance. Her follow-up documentary, Feature the Good Life, in 2010, was selected for the feature-length competition at IDFA and also selected for hot dogs in Tribeca and San Francisco Film Festivals. In 2011, The Good Life was awarded the Best Documentary Film at the Karlovy Vary Festival. She has since directed films such as The Samurai Case in 2011, The Castle in 2014, as well as A Modern Man in 2017, which was nominated for the Nordic Docs Award, A Cherry Tale in 2019, and also in 2019, she directed Love Child. And that's the film we're going to be talking about today, which was selected for the Toronto Film Festival and won for Best Documentary at the Chicago International Film Festival and got a special mention at Doc NYC. Eva has also won the 2006 WIFT, or Women in Film and TV Award for Young Film Talents, as well as the DFI's Documentary Award 
Arus Friesen in 2011, and she is the co-owner of the acclaimed production company Danish Documentary Production, and since 2019 has been a member of the Oscar Academy. So, Ava, welcome to the show. Thank you. That was a piece of my life you just <laughs> rolled out there. <laughs> I wanted to to give a sense of the depth of, of the kind of things that you've been working on as we talk more about Love Child. Now, Love Child, honestly, I have to tell you, Ava, that I was not ready for this film when I watched it. And what I mean by that is, first of all, I was surprised by watching the film that you got this story about these people, you know, are are in the situation that they are di- are in. Now, don't get me wrong; it's wonderful that you got this. I think it's a very compelling story that everyone should see, and uh, you know, it's just such a a great and tragic, not in some ways tragic, love story about these people that are that are trying to better their lives, and it's it it was wonderful to watch, but heartbreaking at the same time. You know, this illegal love story that focuses on a young Iranian family that seeks asylum in Turkey. And it's, you know, it's just, wow, I have to say I'm surprised. The other thing I was thinking about as I watched this film was how it was filmed and, and, and how you got this in, in, in Iran and in Turkey and the time period it takes from 2012, I think, right up to 2017 or 19. And we see all the changes that they are going through, trying to uh, get their lives in order and escape. And it's all, like you say, it's, it's a love story. It's based around what these two people are trying to do for their child, Manny. Um, and we see him, of course, grow throughout this, this story as well. So congratulations on this film. Thank you. Yeah, but I, I think um, the tradition I've been working in for more than 20 years is to try and, and capture the reality uh, in the same way as you when you watch a fiction film, that you mm-hmm. show scenes yep. and you focus on emotional stuff, um, yep. not only the relevant uh, stuff that people can say that we are so uh, much exposed uh, to in, in news, Mm-hmm. but more the kind of uh, human things where we, we start to reflect on how it is to be exactly that other human being in a situation maybe different from ours, but I don't think people are that different. We can understand the emotional twists and turns and, and the demons we carry with us. I mean, all of our wills and, and dreams and all of that stuff is, I think that's more... Um, deep or touching uh, in cinema in a way than, than just like relevant stuff, more like intellectual stuff in a way. Yes, right. So the story is based around uh, Leila and uh, Sahand. And as I mentioned, can you tell us more about how the story came to light in terms of learning about the couple, learning about their situation, and then actually, you know, getting them to participate in this. I'm sure that there was some some delicate situations throughout the filming process of this whole story. Yeah, I mean, the story came to me in a, a bit of a strange way because um, there was a guy, a Danish director, who's a co-director on the film. Um, actually, we are three directors. I'm the main director and then there are two two co-directors 
And one of the co-directors, he had met Sahan, the husband in the couple, mm. uh, when he was in Iran. And um, they had chatted in the bazaar and they kind of made friends. And I think Sahan was, as if you see the film, you know that you will know that Sahan is, is involved with the intelligence service. So he's like a small time spy. Mm. And because he speaks English, he's... Uh, he has, he's assigned to chat with tourists in the in the bazaar and find out what they're there for. So maybe that was what happened when he met uh, my co-director Morton. But anyway, they they became friends and they kept in contact. And um, when Sahan and Leila decided that they had to escape Iran because they had had an affair, uh, which is illegal, and they have have a kid from that affair that was raised in Iran as a as the biological kid of of her husband, which mm. is not Sahan. Um, and at a certain point, they, they decided that they couldn't live this way. Uh, they only saw each other in parks and in restaurants, and they couldn't be a family. So they decided to escape together, the two grown up and the kid. And that kid didn't know that his uh, real father was this uncle that took him to to Turkey. Mm-hmm. So Morton started, they called up Morton when they decided, the, my, my co-director, when they decided to, to escape because they thought it would be more safe for them to have someone keeping an eye on them and a track of them. Because in, in Iran, it's not, as they told me, it's not uncommon that people just disappear and you don't know where they are. Mm. So they uh, actually wanted this film to be made out of security issues um and and so modern started to film with them for the first year when they were out of of iran uh, they had to film a lot inside of iran themselves on their cell phones and they did continue to do so in uh, turkey for the from for all of the years that we've been with them but modern is is uh, not a experienced uh, feature length documentary filmmaker he, he does more short stuff so mm-hmm. He, he was not able to raise money for this film and, and he came to my production company and, and asked if, if we would cooperate with them on this film. Um, so we started that cooperation and, and in the beginning we thought that this might just be a couple of years, we could follow this family um, in their early life in Turkey and then through the process of, of seeking asylum and hopefully they would get um, a new country assigned and we could follow them to that country and then end the story there. But when you see the, the film, you will understand that it didn't go that way. It's not that easy. And um, we were lucky with this family that they are very transparent. Oh, yes. They, uh, they're not shy and, and hiding their emotions. Um, and in a way, because they were such in such a vulnerable situation and in the beginning, they didn't have much of a community around them and not much family. So in a way we, we came in, in their, into their lives in a way where they, they felt the need to share their story with us. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons why we got so close to them and you get quite a, a intimate uh, feeling of being part of their family somehow. It's partly because they needed us there and partly because they are like that. They're very open people and very um, very transparent with their emotions. They certainly were. And I guess that's what I meant by I wasn't ready for what I was about to see. Going back to how you said the idea of documenting this for security purposes makes a lot of sense in terms of what we see in some cases. Uh, so we've been shooting for six years and for the for the. Last part of five years, I was part of the shooting and the directing and also 
we had because we felt that we wanted to uh, sometimes when you watch a documentary you feel that you you get pieces of reality but but the production realities can somehow uh, make you feel that you're not there at the right time and the right moments mm. and uh, we wanted to be very um, flexible so we made a team of three directors we all able to shoot um, and make sound so we're nice. like one man bands yep. and we made a schedule so that we could go whenever something new happened in the case and we were very um, like we were aiming for being there whenever they got any news from the UN so um, some years we went um, sh shooting a lot and had a lot of trips to Istanbul and other years it was few mm. uh, but we we had like a schedule between the three of us so that we knew that somebody would be able to go with very short notice and I think that's also part of the strength of the film that we actually feel that we are we are with the family family in an organic way and it's not like we're not we're not just trying to cover up that we were not there we actually put a lot of priority to to be there whenever something happened and the fam family themselves they were very good at shooting um scenes whenever i mean sometimes they just got a really important information on their phone or something that we couldn't postpone for us to be able to be there right. so they they shot a lot of the important stuff that make you understand what is going on and and following the process very closely on their cell phones so it was a very close cooperation between the film team and the family. And beyond that, and you're absolutely correct, you, you are completely drawn into this. And on top of that, they have this young boy that is growing up in the film. You see them actually going into therapy. And the therapy is, is a session that you get to see and take part in, that these people are opening up in this private moment with their therapist and, uh, and counseling. And there's these wonderful, wonderful moments that take place in there. They went to counseling, but we in, we invented this this particular thing for the film, ah. um, and and they um, and we found a counselor who is a specialist in in uh, refugees, and she does free counseling for ah. refugees. Okay, so it's not like a fake thing at all, but it it was just um, a lot of the film's kind of drama has happened before we meet them. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it's, we tried to find out how we could, uh, actually make that come alive. And I tried to do a lot of different things, uh, make the, make interviews with the couple and, and never felt that I could really make it work or they could tell me. Um, so, so the idea came up that we could, because they wanted, and they had been through ther therapy. So we, yes. we thought that that could maybe be a natural, uh, way of telling their backstory. And, yeah. and it was really I mean, I didn't understand what was going on. I don't understand Turkish, but I could just see that this woman uh, actually had a way of talking with them that made them open up. And, and a lot of these issues that they talk about, they're very shameful and, and they're kind of taboos in, in many people's life, especially mm. when you're from Iranian culture. Mm. So the language around him, that kind of issue is, is uh, sexuality and shame and right. uh, adultery and that stuff. That, that is not a, a language that many people uh, exercise with each other a lot. So um, I just found it wonderful that this particular woman with her education, her experience from speaking to refugees, were able to actually open this, uh, this conversation with them in a way that I was not able to. Right. 
What about Manny, the the son, who is part of this? That you know, their their reason for leaving and trying to make a better life for themselves is for partly for their son, so so that he has a, a mother and a father as as a family unit, and they don't have to live this lie that they were were living them living in. Although I have to admit that the the woman is very clever about how she uh, convinces her husband in Iran that it actually is his child. Found that to be very clever in how she describes that, and very you know very unusual, very strange to hear and see that the way she was living in that relationship, you know. Yeah, I, I don't know so much about it either, but uh, it seems like uh, when you have an institution like marriage, um, and the women are not able to choose. Uh, mm. I mean, they can choose the wrong guy, and they are not able to get out of that marriage. Then you have to live in a way for the marriage itself. And, and um, I hear a lot of stories like that, that you're not, um, if you're in an unhappy marriage, you're not able to change any of that. And, and the one thing is that you're not able to get divorced, but also the, the social pressure on you and your family, if you manage to do so, it's very strong. So mm. I think this particular woman is a very strong example of, of uh, the, that a lot of Persian women they don't. They don't want to just obey the the social co- constructions that they live under. Right. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app. And of course, you may be listening on one of the other radio stations that are carrying the show, Moment of Truth. And we welcome you to the show as well. My guest is Ava Mulvad, and she is a director, one of three directors that were taking part in this documentary film that we're talking about for the Toronto Human Rights Watch Film Festival, rather, taking place from February 18th to the 22nd. And you can get tickets online at the Ted Rogers Cinema website. Love Child is the name of the film that uh, is submitted by Ava. And it's an intimately filmed epic love story that introduces Leila and Sahand uh, at the start of a turbulent five-year period beginning with their escape from Iran where while they are married to other people, they fall in love. And uh, since adultery is punishable by death and divorce forbidden, they run for their lives and start over again as a family in Turkey with their young son, Manny. And we're talking to Ava about this documentary, about their story, incredibly intimately, as you pointed out, filmed. And even though they have some high points and some success, there's also some very very drawn-out, dramatic moments throughout this whole thing. Once they do escape and they are in Turkey, the son is... It's very challenging. He's very young. I'm not sure of his age at the time. Is he like five or six or younger? He's just just turning five. He's just turning five. And so, you know, the stress that that puts on him and he breaks down and you're not sure how that is going to roll out. So there's always these these challenges that we see. Yeah, I mean... I think um, partly this film is about um, being a refugee. Uh, some of the things you mentioned about the existential loss of belonging somewhere mm. um, and the powerlessness uh, you yeah. feel when somebody else decides your destiny. But at the same time, I think our lives, everybody, every, everybody lives lives that are not only about one thing. Yeah. There's a lot of different elements to a full life. Sure. And that's the case as well with refugees. I mean, 
there's a love story going on, but there's also um, a story about like slowly building uh, an everyday life where you kind of connect to where you have ended up. And in this case, they end up in the suburbs of uh, Istanbul. Mm. And this family, they are skilled people. I mean, they have money in their pockets when they come out of U Iran, but they are also they also well educated and and they are socially skilled. So they rather fast they actually integrate in mm. a way where they uh, find out how they can uh, be part of society, how they can position themselves, how they can earn money in a very difficult situation. I mean, they come out of Iran just in the midst of the wave of waves of refugees from the war in Syria. And Turkey is one of the countries with the most refugees. I mean, the, the last time I checked on the numbers, it was more than 3 million refugees living there. So like the market for cheap employment is huge and there's a lot of competition and there's a lot of competition for cheap housing and mm. it's a difficult situation they're in. But they manage, yes. um, and they also manage to build a, a rather all right normal life there for their son, manage mm -hmm. to get him into school, manage to, to create a community around them. Um, and it's a very, very difficult job that they do, and, and they're in a difficult situation, but they're good at solving it. And I, yeah. a, a lot of the, uh, sometimes we discussed whether we were allowed in a way to do a film uh, about one of those really heavy topics in the world, the refugee crisis and mm. the, the situations of refugee this, that, that a lot of refugees are in today that are so hopeless and desperate and full of very tra traumatic stories. And this story is, of course, traumatic in some ways, but it's not about somebody losing a leg in the war or a family member in the war. Or it's... it's um, it's a different kind of refugee story mm. and a kind of a luxury refugee story, you can say. Yep. But I also think it's important to, I had a few points that I came back to all the time when I asked myself these questions, like there's a lot of refugees in the world today and they are not one unified mass of people with the same characteristics. They are as different, different as people who are not refugees. Mm. So some can do what this family can do and other, people's, other people cannot. Um, and I think this particular family uh, might be easier to relate to for some of us. Um, I've been thinking a lot about them in this crisis we are in now with the coronavirus, yeah. that everybody's life can change radically. Yeah. Um, and how are we able to adapt to that? And, and this family, because they speak English, because they are well-educated, because they have possibilities... In a way, maybe it's easier for some of us who are more privileged and have not been into real traumatic situations to actually mirror ourselves in them. Mm. That was some of the reflections around that topic right. anyway. Right. And Mani, as you, you mentioned him, um, yeah, we've been part of his family in a way for many years. Mm. And uh, of course, it's, it's, it's always a question of how can you film a small child because they're not aware what yeah what they share with you mm. but in this case as the parents were so close and they had um allowed us in um it became a very natural thing to to make him part of the story and and as he grew older we've been able to talk to him because he learned english and right. so uh, we have had a more you can say uh, um we, we've been able to find out how he th how he think about this film right. and, and how he's 
participation in this film has influenced right. him. Right. And so as the story unfolds in the years past, we, we finally see that there is some success that they've had and, and the challenges that they've overcome. And then, of course, uh, when they're thinking about uh, finally uh, choosing a country, they pick America, and then uh, Donald Trump is elected. Mm. And everything changes for them again. Yeah. I think it's, in a way, we, we saw this little family as... Um, like a, a way of, of looking at the consequences of the politics of the world today. Mm. I mean, because they're influenced about, of all the choices that, uh, that, that the world around them makes. I mean, um, because of the refugee crisis in 1516 in Europe, a lot of countries closed their borders to take in quota refugees because a lot of refugees came in over our borders. And domestic uh, politicians has has made um, um, they they they've been elected because they've been hard on on refugees. So in a way, a lot of countries stopped taking quota refugees, which this family end up being uh, part of that the specific group of refugees. And then some of the countries left that still took refugees. That was America, and then Trump is elected, and he turns. Uh, that politic around. So mm -hmm. I think from this little perspective, it's um, it's interesting to see. Um, at, and at the end of all the politi politic uh, political decisions that that we that the world that is happening in the world today, there there will be real people uh, influenced by all of this. Yeah. And of course, we're left at the end of the film with the family still in Turkey, and uh, again with another challenge facing them. How have you been in contact with the family? It sounds like you have. How are they doing? How is is the situation changed for them? Do we know? Yeah, I mean, it's it's still pretty much the same or even worse because, mm. um, I mean, they their security is their job. Mm. Um, as long as they have jobs, they can stay in Turkey and they can have a pretty all right um, standard of living. Mm. Um, but now uh, Turkey is also super influenced by uh, the coronavirus and the schools are closing down. And it's not like here where we have public schools, which means that you can still get your salary as a teacher because you can teach online. That's not the case in, in Turkey. They, they, the parents, they, they can't pay because they don't have jobs and then the school does not pay the teachers. So mm. they're in a super difficult situation. And, and it, uh, <clears throat> before all of this happened, um, we talked about the fact that they actually were able to create a good life for themselves in yes. Turkey and maybe they should give up a bit on the dream of yeah. getting somewhere else to live and, and, and just settle there. But the mother, both of them said, but if we could choose, we would leave all of this tomorrow if, that, if yeah. we could, ex could exchange that for a secure base yes. somewhere where we, could, we knew that we had the rights to live and Mani could grow up um, and have a passport and have uh, like basic social rights. Yes. And I think we forget that um, a lot of the time that we take it for granted that we live and many of us live in a, in an organized society. We have a passport. We can go to the police if anything happened. Um, we have rights. We can vote. I mean, all of that stuff, uh, they can't. And in a situation like this where society is under pressure and salaries go down, you lose your job. For people without basic rights, that's a nightmare. Yeah. Um, so they are in a very difficult situation economically, and and their stability is um, is is at risk. And um, 
they try to make it yeah still yeah well it's been a pleasure having you on on the show eva i'm just wondering does this does this story lead to a part two potentially have you thought of that have you thought about a continuation of this documentary well i mean if if i have i keep in contact with them and um we we never know when a, a story ends but mm. we have to end it <laughs> somehow <laughs> right um but if something happens if they get um a chance to resettle or any any i mean it's a lovely family i love to work with them mm. but um but a story also um it takes a lot of of uh, of different things in their life and right now they're in a, a difficult situation but something has to move on yeah. and, uh, and if something happens like that maybe okay Ava, once again, been a pleasure having you on the show. I want to thank you for taking the time to join us and share about your film Love Child that is in the Toronto Human Rights Watch Film Festival from February 18th to the 22nd. And uh, congratulations on all of the other films that you've made. And we certainly look forward to hearing more from uh, other works you'll be bringing forward. Thank you so much. Thank you for hosting me. You bet. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is Ava Malvad, and she is the one of the three directors of Love Child. It is, as I say, part of the Toronto Human Rights Watch Film Festival from February 18th to the 22nd, streaming online free. You can go to uh, Hot Docs, uh, Ted Rogers Cinema website to find out more about reserving your tickets to see these films, uh, uh, Love Child being one of them. And uh, it's been a pleasure to have Ava on the show. And please stay tuned to our show each and every day right here on Moment of Truth and Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses, and we will see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.